This is Press Publish, a weekly conversation about journalism, technology, and the media business, where we talk with the people building the future of news. I'm Josh Benton, director of the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard. This is episode five. My guest this week is Chris Anderson. You may know him by his byline, C.W. Anderson, because there are too many Chris Andersons in the journalism and technology worlds. Chris is a professor of media culture at CUNY and a longtime Neiman Lab contributor, but for our purposes today, he's mostly here as the author of a new book looking at the decline of major metro newspapers, specifically through the lens of Philadelphia. It's called Rebuilding the News, Metropolitan Journalism in the Digital Age, and it's just out from Temple University Press. Chris is an ethnographer by trade, so he spent a lot of time hanging out in the major newsrooms of Philadelphia, mainly its two daily newspapers, the Broadsheet Inquirer and the Tabloid Daily News, and spending a lot of time with the bloggers and the startups who were just starting to provide the audience with new alternatives in local news. This book is a great window into how newspapers and newspaper culture, really, responded to the new competition and to their own financial declines. It's also a look at how the optimism that some felt just a few years ago, that there would be these new institutions to rise up to replace the declining old ones, how that optimism has shifted into a slightly gloomier mood. We talked about how he did his research, his other work with the likes of Clay Shirky and Emily Bell, how his own thinking about journalism institutions has evolved over time. Here's our conversation. Chris, how did you get started being interested in, in journalism in general and, you know, journalism academia more specifically? Right. Um, so it could be a long story or a, a long story or a short story. Um, how about medium? <clears throat> we don't want to take up the whole hour. <laughs> right. Um, you know, so I started off um, in community organizing, actually, and that's what I did right right out of college. Um, I did um, AmeriCorps uh, Vista for a year in Houston, and then I did um, some housing-related um, community organizing work also in Houston and then in New Jersey. Um, and while I was doing that, this was sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, um, and I was getting increasingly you know, sort of interested in the way that I, as an organizer, was um, getting or not getting my message out and sort of the new digital tools that were available um, for me to get or not get that message out. So I actually started um, kind of becoming a user of and a person who was interested in, um, you know, what we called at the time called alternative media. Um, you know, I wasn't calling it blogging or citizen journalism or anything like that. But, you know, there was this whole kind of lefty tradition of kind of alternative media from, you know, shows like Democracy Now! and WBAI, um, you know, to, you know, community newspapers and, and things like that. So I got interested in you know, what are the new ways or what are the ways that people are trying to kind of get their messages out? Um, and, you know, that increasingly started shading over into the Internet. Um, you know, I started to see people using, you know, and I knew what the Internet was. I used it a lot, you know, in college to send email and to buy things and to, you know, and to, you know, find chats and forums and, and you know, places where people hung out and talked about bands I liked. But I, I didn't really start seeing anyone using the internet for a journalistic, you know, in a journalistic way or for a, you know, a, a, a way to communicate or to, you know, get their messages out there until, you know, the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, and then I started to notice this more and more. So I, you know, was both kind of interested in what was going on. I was, you know, sort of like, how can I use this in my own, in my own, you know, political work. Um, and that kind of sparked a greater intellectual interest in, in how these you know, new and old technologies, you know, what were the sort of history of these technologies, um, you know, going, going very far back? Um, how were these new, 
digital technology is changing the way information got produced, information got made, um, you know, and circulated around in the the larger sort of political space. Um, you know, and from there it was kind of like, you know, okay, I've been, you know, doing this organizing for a couple years. Uh, I'm, I can actually probably make more money getting a graduate student stipend <laughs> than I can as a, as a community organizer. Um, unfortunately. So, you I'm know, surprised you didn't take the other career route of the community organizing and just become president. Yeah, well, that is, you know, that, that, you know, Barack Obama has opened up a lot of paths for a lot of people, uh, you know, and I guess that was one, uh, <laughs> you know, it, you can become president. But, you know, I didn't know that at the time. So I just decided to go to go to get my PhD instead, which was probably a, a better move both for myself and for the country. Um, so that's kind of the backstory, you know, and I guess the point is just that I got interested, I was interested in kind of this idea of the larger media ecosystem, you know, both the traditional journalistic players and the new entrants and the kind of alternative media makers, um, you know, as a user and as a person who was politically engaged. Um, so I, you know, I, I sort of came to the internet and came to the changes in journalism with that kind of already operating in the background, and I was kind of very sensitive to who the different players were and 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 how they interacted and how you know if something gets reported in a you know in a, in a, on a blog or on an all in an all weekly newspaper, you know, how does that affect the New York Times, you mm-hmm. know, if at all? Um, I think that was kind of the key question for me. So, so do you feel that the fact that you approached a lot of journalism questions coming from a place of, you know, from from a place of advocacy of thinking of of journalistic work or or news work as having being an instrument towards something else? Do you think that's influenced the way that you might have, you know, gone about your academic work and and your the issues that you're interested in and how you approach them? Yeah, I, I definitely think you know it's sort of to me all journalism you know is you know, is inherently political. Um, you know, I was never disillusioned. I never had a moment of disillusionment with objectivity, I guess. Um, you know, there was never, you know, I was never kind of a believer in objective journalism. And then, you know, had a moment where I, you know, I was, I was sort of shattered and, you know, was like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, this is not even true. (laughs) Uh, This is all a, you know, a fraud, uh, you know, and then I kind of found, you know, found the light uh, of journalism as a political thing. It's sort of the opposite. I actually started off believing in journalism as a, as a almost entirely an instrument of politics, um, you know, and became more sympathetic, <laughs> actually, to the idea of objective objectivity and objective journalism as I went along, hmm. you know, and as I started to study journalists and study how they thought about what they did and how, you know, what they understood objectivity to mean, you know, I started off not believing it in any way and thinking it was all just a, you know, a load and, and kind of, as I actually took the time to, to understand the way journalism worked, um, got a more nuanced conception of it and, and, you know, maybe was sympathetic to it in a way I hadn't been, you know, before I started my research, um, which is not to say, you know, necessarily, you know, my views on objectivity would be loved and endorsed by everybody at the, at the New York Times, but it, you know, it certainly, you know, it was sort of interesting to go through that process backwards rather than, than the other way around, I guess. Right. You're a journalistic Benjamin Button. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. It's it's interesting in the, in the context of of your book, which is what we're part of what we're talking about, rebuilding the news, in which you spend a fair amount of time detailing the 
the, the self-conception of journalists and how they view their work through a, a lens that involves objectivity and involves this idea of a mass public. And uh, it's interesting that, that you say you've sort of moved ever so slightly or somewhat in that direction. Let, let's, let's shift a little bit to, to Philadelphia, yeah. uh, which is where you're doing work. Um, and this was work. This was this book is your your PhD, your dissertation turned into a book, right? It is yes. Yeah. Um, as much as one can, you know, um, de-dissertate uh, a a <laughs> thing, you know, a three hundred page thing. I have tried to do that here, um, you know, and make it interesting and and readable for your kind of average everyday person. Right. Um, so or, we'll see. We'll see if I succeeded or or not. <laughs> or at least the average everyday Neiman lab reader. That'd be correct. That'd yes. be fine. Right. Um, so uh, your the book is about the the journalistic and the media ecosystem in Philadelphia. Uh, I guess why Philadelphia. Why'd you, why'd you decide on that? There are yeah. lots of cities in the world. Sure. Um, you know, there's the good academic reason and then there's the honest reason, uh, which is not entirely far from the from the good academic reason. Um, the good academic reason is that, you know, in, in – in academia, there's always this, you know, idea of, you know, how how much can you generalize what you're studying, right? So, is can what you're studying, you know, be said to apply to, you know, the entire universe, uh, you know, at all times and places? Um, and and you know, sort of the gold standard in traditional academia is generalizability, right? You want to say that, you know, what you found applies not just to what you studied, but to to the larger world. Um, you know, when you do ethnographic research, which is what I did, which basically, for those who don't know, you know, is kind of long-term immersion in a particular place uh, where you sort of study the natives, um, you know, and for me, the natives are journalists. But anyway, so that's what ethnography is. That's the kind of research I did. And when you do ethnographic research, you know, generalizability is always kind of fraught anyway, right, because it's more about studying one smaller thing in depth than it is about you know being able to say this is true in all times all places forever and ever um that said though you do want to try to say you know hey maybe what i found does apply elsewhere um so the point of this is to say that i was living in new york um i had a very you know um strong sense that uh the way the media was in New York City was unlike the way the media was anywhere else uh, in the world, with the possible exception of you know London and 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 Moscow and you know Beijing and you know kind of these world cities. But local journalism, city journalism in New York was was inevitably you know national news um, to to some degree, um, you know which. Um, so New York isn't like other places, and to me, you know, I wanted to study news in a city, um, and to me, Philadelphia was more like other cities um, where the news was sort of dealing with all these digital questions than New York was. So, I mean, it could have been Philadelphia, it could have been Baltimore, it could have been, you know, maybe even Boston, although Boston has its own idiosyncrasies, or, you know, it could have been, it could have been Des Moines or, or, you know, Austin, Texas, or, you know, probably New Orleans, you know, your home, uh, hometown, <laughs> Um, you know, so Philadelphia just seemed more average than New York did. Um, so that was kind of the academic reason. Um, the slightly less academic reason was that I made contacts there um, to do ethnography well. And, you know, we can talk about this more if, if you want. Um, but to do ethnography well, you have to you have to get in there. You know, you have to you have to be able to get to a point where people trust you enough to just kind of hang around and watch them for you know, years, basically, uh, I was able to do that in Philadelphia. So that was sort of another reason. Um, 
the third and final and totally unacademic reason was that um, my parents live uh, in the Philadelphia suburbs uh, over in New Jersey. Um, and so I could stay with them while I was doing the research uh, for free. Um, you know, so I had a place to stay. And uh, as a broke uh, PhD student, um, you know, living with your parents while, you know, sort of spiritually demoralizing uh, is financially a good idea. So, you know, I was, I was, there I was, I was 30 years old. I was, you know, living in my parents' basement and, uh, you know, going out and hanging out in newsrooms every day. So it was sort of a weird, you know, I, I can't say I'm, I'm sad that those days are over, but, you know, it was a, it was a good way to get research done. And, you know, the other nice thing about it was that there was absolutely nothing going on, uh, you know, in Haddon Township, New Jersey, um, to distract me from from my scholarship. So, so those are sort of the three reasons why I uh, right. why I picked Philly. Oh, the things we do in the in the quest for knowledge. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Because I think Philadelphia is an interest. I mean, certainly Philadelphia is more normal if we can put normal in a, a series of of scare quotes. Normal than New York as a, as a media ecosystem, but it's it's also. I mean, Philadelphia is a very large market. It's what the mm. fifth or sixth largest market yep. in, in the in the country. It's yep. a two newspaper town, which yep. is interesting and in, from a you know more things to look at point of view. But it's still sort of the exception to the rule. Right. It's you know ha- has had a I, I think probably a, a more vibrant online news ecosystem than a lot of other cities. And it's interesting to me to think what if you were in I don't know Hartford or yep. you know Oklahoma City or some city that wasn't quite as vibrant, whether how how the story might be different. Yeah, and you know, I think that's totally true. And you know, sort of the in the 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 inevitable and um, some kind of unfortunate uh, defense of of scholarship like this is, is to say, you know, well, more research is needed, right? <laughs> uh, but you know, in all seriousness, you know, I know Dan Kennedy has has just finished a book on kind of independent um, <clears throat> independent news production. I think in in Massachusetts in, in New Haven, in New Haven, yeah. So. Um, you know, I mean, that's that's kind of another take. Uh, that's sort of another, in some ways, is is exactly your question. You know, so he's looking at again. I mean, New Haven itself is is exceptional in all these different different ways. Obviously, you know, Yale is there, um, but you know, so I'm kind of personally interested, you know, to read Dan's book um, when it comes out and see, you know, and kind of compare it in my own mind, you know, and see, you know, what did he find that was the same? What did he find that that was different? Um, you know, and and what about this may relate to. You know, differences in time, differences in what we studied, but also differences in the places we were in. Um, you know, so, yeah, I think that, you know, with this kind of research, you hope that at least a few other people will study roughly similar things so you can uh, so you can you can start to compare them. Yeah. So uh, you're, you're, you described your work accurately as, as ethnographic. Uh, yeah. That, that is a style of research that I think is probably – at least a few steps closer to traditional journalistic work than some other forms of academic uh, academic work. I, what, can you describe what exactly you're doing? So, like, you know, how many days were you spending in new, in you know the Inquirer newsroom? How you know how much time are we talking about? <clears throat> sure. Um, so yeah, it it is uh, you know ethnography is definitely you know about as close to journalism um, as as you know academic research gets, and that. Um, you know, is good and bad, and it can you know be used as a as a way to delegitimize it in in some ways within the academy. Actually, um, so so that's a that's actually another another conversation we can we can have later. Um, but it is you know so you know it, it both makes it, so the the similarity between ethnography and journalism it 
on the one hand, journalists understand completely what you're doing. Um, but on the other hand, there are differences between journalism and ethnography. And, and sometimes, you know, journalists think you're doing exactly what they do and, and, and you're not quite doing journalism. Um, in terms of what you actually do, um, you know, so I would, ba- you know, on an average day, I would, I would get up, um, you know, at the crack of dawn and I would take the train over into Philadelphia and I would sit in a cafe um, in the very early morning and, and transcribe all my notes from the day before. Um, I would, I would go back and listen to the tape and I wouldn't do an, an exact transcription right then, but I would, you know, listen to the tape I'd, I'd put together and I would, you know, find places that were important and I'd go back to my notes and I would, you know, I would, I would, I would write down, you know, one minute and 32 seconds on this day, you know, this is important, go back and, and, and listen to this later. Um, and I was able to do that pretty easily because, you know, journalists, uh, traditional print newspapers are not notoriously early risers. Uh, <laughs> they didn't usually get into the office till about 10 or 1030. So I had the whole morning to, uh, you know, to, to do note no transcription while they were, you know, preparing to start their day. That's why um, many of us got into journalism, just so you know. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, there, there's actually a whole, you know, the, one of the interesting things I, I noticed very early on was just the different time regimens of the online and the the, the more traditional print folks. Mm. Um, the online folks would start, you know, 6, 7 a.m. They would be there in the office, you know, doing this, you know, spinning the homepage, as they put it, you know, basically – you know, playing to that early morning crowd and early morning, you know, audience. And then sort of the print reporters would roll in at 10 and 10 or, you know, 10, 1030. Um, and it just created sort of a very different work dynamic between these two groups. And it was actually one of the ways that they sort of distinguished themselves from each other. Right. You know, the, and that's maybe, you know, not worth getting into at this point, but yeah, there was definitely a difference in, 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 in time regimens between the on and the offline folks. So, you know, so I would get in and, you know, I kind of when I started I had this idea that I would I would get to the office, you know, they gave me a desk kind of in the center of the there were plenty of desks in the Philadelphia newsrooms because they had lost, you know, about a third uh their staff at that point. Um they've lost more since then. I would get in, I would show up, I would I would go to my desk. Um, you know, some days I would I would deliberately set out to shadow people. Um and what that means is I would find a particular reporter who I thought was doing interesting things, or I would find a particular reporter who was, you know, working with the online team in a particularly interesting way or a particularly meaningful way, and I would kind of shadow her or him across the day. Um so, you know, and sometimes I would just shadow somebody one day, sometimes I would shadow them a whole week. Um, so that was sort of one, you know, and by shadow, I mean, you know, you follow them around, uh, as they are, you know, doing something, if there's a way to do this, so it doesn't totally interrupt them, you say, so why'd you do that? What does that mean? You know, why did you ask that person that question instead of this other question? You know, what is that notebook for? You know, when you go to your computer, you know, really just kind of basic, obvious, probably really annoying questions like that. Um, you know, and you kind of follow the person from place to place across their day, um, so that was one kind of angle on it. Um, you know, another angle on it was you would just sort of sit in the newsroom and you would just listen to what was going on and you would, you know, kind of just try to take the whole newsroom in. And, you know, as you heard something interesting coming up, you would kind of wander over and be like, you know, hey, what's going on? What, uh, what are you guys talking about? Tell me more. Um, you know, which in some ways, again, is very similar to what journalists do. Um, I can get to the differences in a second. Um, you know, that – so. 
ethnography can last, you know, anywhere from a couple months to a couple years. Um, the stuff done in the 1970s tended to be longer lasting. Um, folks like Herb Gans had more time and more funding and more ability to just go to a newsroom for, you know, three years and do this. Uh, we don't have that time, even as doctoral students, we didn't have that time. So I was in Philadelphia for about six months doing this, um, from the early spring to the end of the summer, um, in 2000, uh, 2008. Um, and then, you know, there was research before that that was primarily interview-based where I just interviewed a lot of the people in the larger media ecosystem. Um, and then there were multiple kind of follow-up visits um, everywhere from, you know, 2009 till today where I would, you know, go back for a week and kind of do a little mini ethnography or I would get interviews done, you know. So there were kind of regular follow-ups every few months just to kind of, you know, be like what's changed, what hasn't changed, what stayed the same, Um so yeah, so that's sort of in a nutshell what what you do as a as a ethnographer. Um, and and it, it seems like there's a tension at a certain level between um, being a, uh, doing an, doing ethnography, which is of its nature immersion in, a, in an environment, and at the same time doing something that is focused on a larger media ecosystem mm-hmm. where there are lots of different players, uh, yep. not just the big, not just the Enquirer. I'm curious how you how you divvied up your time among. You know, I assume you spent the largest portion of your time at the Enquirer, but, you know, who were who the other places that you spent more time in? You know, I actually ended up spending the majority of my time at the Daily News, believe oh, it or not, okay. um, the Philadelphia Daily News, um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, one of them just being that the Daily News was a lot more relaxed when it came to, you know, me hanging around. They just, you know, tabloid guys, they were just like, sure, come on in as long as you want. We don't care. You know, you want to work, <laughs> you know, and the, and the Inquirer. We had a shooting. Being, you want to go out on it? Yeah. Right. Exactly. No, I, you know, and I mean, you know, the Inquirer being a, you know, being a broadsheet, um, you know, was definitely a little more buttoned up uh, in, a, in a good way, but definitely a little more, you know, a little more self-conscious of my presence there. Um, you know, a little more like, you know, how long are you going to be here? Okay. You know, let's, you know, let's set a start date and an end date, you know, whereas the Daily News folks, you know, I could have stayed there for, for a year and they would have been happy for the company, I think, and, you know, happy to have somebody hanging around. Um, but, you know, I was at both of those places a lot. Um, you know, I did the most of my larger um, ecosystem work um, before and after I got to the Enquirer and the Daily News. Um, a lot of it was interview-based. There was some shadowing involved. Um, although it's, you know, what does it mean to shadow a blogger? Uh, <laughs> not much. You know, you sit there and watch them type all day. But, you know, there is some stuff you get out you get out of hanging around with, with bloggers. Um, so a lot of that stuff happened early and a lot of that stuff happened afterwards. Um, you know, my idea, I think, was basically to go to where the news was being produced, um, you know, and to follow the news back to where it was being made. And... You know, one of the interesting things about taking an ecosystem perspective on journalism as opposed to an institutional perspective on journalism is that ultimately, for me anyway, I kept getting led back to the institutions. In other words, you know, I didn't necessarily want to spend the majority of my time at the Enquirer and the majority of my time at the Daily News. But, you know, when it came to where is the majority of news in Philadelphia being produced, um, at least in 2008 – you know, and and probably still even even today, um, it was those traditional news institutions. Um, so you know, to find out where the news was getting made, uh, you know, it sort of inevitably led me back to, you know, the Enquirer building. 
um, you know, was, which was itself a finding um, and made me once again, you know, far more sympathetic to the ideas of folks like, you know, Alex Jones and Len Downey and Michael Shudson, who, you know, make this basic argument that, you know, whatever else you want to say about newspapers, they do produce a lot of the original reporting, um, you know, that we find in these cities, um, you know, that that's just sort of inevitably the way it is. And I, I think I started out my research far again, far less sympathetic to that argument. Um, I was like, oh, these journalists, they're, you know, they're dinosaurs. They're on their way out. Good riddance, you know, be better when they're gone. And, you know, kind of by the end of my research, I was kind of like, oh, you know, that's not really <laughs> – they're still, you know, you, they're still doing the majority of the work here. They're still producing most of the news, and uh, it could be a real problem when they, when they, when they all go away. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Your the arc that you're describing seems in some ways similar to the one that uh, Clay Shirky's talked about having your co-author on the post-industrial journalism report about eventually coming around to the idea that institutions are you know not all terrible and provide a an important role uh, for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Um, you wrote a couple posts for for Neiman Lab. Uh, first, we ran an excerpt of the book, and then you wrote a post describing some of your findings. I want to sort of run through some of the things that you described as the themes through the book. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is journalist self-concept, I guess would be the best yep. way to, to, to frame it. Um, you, an excerpt from your introduction says, local journalism's vision of itself as yep. an institutionally grounded profession that empirically informs and perhaps even assembles the public is a noble vision of tremendous democratic importance, but the unreflexive commitment to a particular and historically contingent version of this self-image now undermines these larger democratic aspirations. Yeah. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, perhaps maybe you could tie it back to some of the specific ethnographic observations that you made. But what what did you learn in the process of, of writing this book and doing the research for it about how journalists see themselves? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it can come up in it can come up in interesting ways. I mean, basically, what I found, and you you sort of quoted it, and, and I can you know simplify it or or, or re rewrite it, you know, for, for the audience, um, you know, journalists had this idea that when it came to, you know, producing public, re publicly relevant information, um, they were the only ones who did it. Um, and they did it for kind of this mass audience that came to them and had nowhere else to go. Um, and that came out a bunch of different little ways that sort of over the course of months and months and months, you know, sort of, you know, assembled themselves into a larger finding. Um, it's, you know, it's hard to go back now and pull out those individual incidents. I mean, one, you know, one thing that just comes to, you know, comes, comes to the top of my head pretty quickly is, you know, you would ask, you would ask, a journalist, you know, you know, why, why is what you're doing, you know, more, you know, more important than, you know, what Joe Blogger down the street is doing or what, you know, celebrity is doing, which was a, you know, kind of like the gawker of Philadelphia, you know, why, why, why is your, why is your work more important than theirs? Um, you know, and they would, <clears throat> they could have said a lot of things, but what they would often say is, you know, oh, well, you know, we have, you know, X million number of page views a day, <laughs> You know, and what do they have? You know, a couple thousand. You know, now now this is not necessarily what you would expect. You know, a professional journalist to say you'd expect them to say, you know, oh well, you know, we do these things that are far more rigorous and far more serious, and et cetera, et cetera. But what they were basically saying was they were saying 
our audience is bigger, and we are the only people who speak to the city of Philadelphia as a mass, right? These other folks speak to little niches, and we speak to, you know, the mass of of Philadelphia. Um, you know, so that's that's one example that that comes to the top of my head, which is how you ethnographically understand what a journalist's self vision is. Um, another way to do it, you know, real quickly. Um, you can. I was in planning meetings for how you know they were going to redesign their website and how they were going to sort of rebuild their websites. You know, when you're in these planning meetings, that is a fascinating moment because when you talk talk about the architecture of a website, um, when you're talking about the architecture of your website, and you as a person who who you know designs and redesigns Neiman Lab, you know you know this uh, yourself. You know you you're automatically thinking about you know who's my audience, who are we. What are we doing and how do we build you know, our own self-image? How do we bake our self-image into the architecture of this site? Right? And, and they verbalize this in these meetings. You know? So that was another way of kind of getting at what journalists' image of themselves were in a, in a concrete and, you know, and tangible way. Um, and th- th- yeah. That's so interesting because, uh, I mean, at a certain level, I, I, I would have expected uh, and I, I think it – fits very well into the history of thinking about news, metro newspaper journalism, that, that the mass and, and the, the public is another way to frame that, uh, that, that that assemblage of, of large numbers of people was very important. And I think in the U.S. probably more important because we have one newspaper cities and, mm-hmm. and this idea that it's not a, a collection of ideologies or, or ethnographic slices of the city. It's the city. Yeah. Even though Philadelphia has two newspapers that appeal right. to very different pieces yep. of the city, yep. uh, but it's—I I mentioned that because, for one thing, uh, local television, by mm-hmm. most measures, uh, mm-hmm. appeals to at least as massive an audience yep. and a, yep. lar- a more massive audience when you take stations and put them together. And we're now in an environment where, if you look at how people consume let's say news defined broadly online. I mean, the Huffington Post has a far broader reach than any Metro newspaper. Like you can just go down the list of websites that, that really do achieve more mass. So it's interesting to hear that, that the mass audience is that big of a conception. I would have expected a slightly more mission driven, like the celebrity is not covering city council meetings, sort of a a David Simon approach to that defense. No. And, and that was definitely there. Um, you know, and again, this is also in, you know, you need to remember this is, you know, 2008, 2009. So, you know, the, the internet had not quite reached that, that level where the Huffington Post was, you know, kicking, kicking mass audience, butt the way, you know, the way it did for a while. Um, but yes, there was also that, you know, it was sort of in the book I talk about, you know, and we might get to this in a second, but it was this combination of the idea of the public and reporting, right? So if you, you know, if you wanted to build yourself up, you talked about the public. And if you wanted to tear other people down, you talked about original reporting. And the way you tore, you know, celebrity down, or even the way you tore down TV news in particular, um, you know, as someone who's building your own occupational self-image, was to say, well, they don't do reporting. You know what I mean? Those folks on TV, they don't really do reporting. They get their reporting from us, and then they go to the side of the road and, you know sort of bad pictures to the reporting that we've already done. Um, Celebrity, they're aggregators, you know, they, they do aggregation. Um, You know, so that was the, that was the flip side of it. They would, at the same time, they would say, you know, we are, we have a mass audience and we do, we do reporting. Yeah. Did did you, you know, it's, it's an old hobby horse of mine that, that, that 
journalists often don't quite uh, conceive of of anything that they do as being aggregation because of that the idea of, of original reporting, whereas, I mean, a, a not insignificant portion of stories in a daily newspaper are based on press releases and press right. conferences and events that are created to hand things to the media. Yep. And there's an act of questioning going on, but nonetheless, it is – and even when you go to a reported story, you're assembling what this expert says in reaction to this press release yep. and, and whatever else. Did, yep. Was there any vision of, of that sort of – that, that vision of that while we do create value independently, we're also performing the work of assembling pieces of value from lots of other sources and presenting it to a public? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was, you know, and, and that's the thing that I want to do more research on, you know, down the road, um, because I still find that that question of reporting so interesting, you know, um, that no, <laughs> you know, and, and in fact, it was almost the opposite. Um you know, you when you when you first had, you know, bloggers, people with the title of, of you know, blogger get jobs at the Philadelphia newspapers, at the Daily News, at the um, the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, almost all of them were bloggers who were doing what they saw as original reporting, and they would they would talk about their blogs as simply a way to further. Their primary mission, which was original reporting, and to you know, to, as part of that entire package. Um, now we all know, you know, Will Bunch. Many Neiman Lab readers might know, you know, the sure. guy in Philadelphia Daily News runs a blog called Attitude. Um, he is not that way. He is a a proudly opinionated and aggregative blogger. Um, but he was a huge exception in Philadelphia while I was there. So even folks with the I, you know, the title blogger or the title aggregator, you know, would talk about what they were doing as in service of original reporting, and they would try to take the blogging rhythms and transform them to reporting ends. And you know, Will was one of the few people, you know, kind of in the newsroom who, you know, sort of had this different self identity as, you know. Somebody who, um, you know, who did this other this other kind of thing, and you know, I think that's not a not a coincidence that you know a lot of people outside of Philadelphia in the larger blogosphere, or the larger digital journalism ecosystem, know Will Bunch in a way that they don't know maybe some of the other bloggers in Philadelphia because Will, you know, sort of saw himself as part of this community. Um, whereas the others did not, and you know the other bloggers in Philadelphia, the other bloggers in in you know the larger media ecosystem recognized Will as one of their own, and they took him more seriously, and he was kind of entered into the fraternity or the you know the the, the tribe the, the tribe as it as it were, um, you know, and um, he you know he was accepted in a different way, and and watching the way that Will you know I thought that people doing blogging would all be doing the blogging that I did when I started blogging and, and you do and, and everybody does. And, you know, it's just these reporters, they just had a very, very different idea of what they were doing, why they were doing it and what the process was. Right. Well, it's, 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 I think easy to look at that, that sort of reporter attitude as being in the end self-defeating and it's what's led to, you know, online native media lapping traditional media and by any, mm -hmm. by lots of metrics and audience metrics. But Given that you described your, your own movement uh, a little yeah. bit more towards the idea of seeing value in uh, in the work that these institutions were doing, do do you think that like 
can you defend that point of view in that if, if you instead think original reporting whether you put scare quotes around it or not is the thing of of most value that that mm-hmm. old line newspapers produce um does it make sense at all for, for the reaction to be, well, then hot damn, we're going to defend that and that's what we're going to do, even if that means that we are perhaps you know not adapting as well? Is, is there a, a noblesse right. oblige to that sort of approach? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think there are two ways to kind of tackle that. Um, and, you know, and the one maybe sort of managerial answer to that is to say like, oh, well, you know, um, you know let's just do it all. Um, you know, and let's get better internal differentiation amongst, you know, in our own newsroom staff, you know, we're going to, we're going to have people deliberately doing this other more will bunch aggregation kind of thing. And in doing that, we are somehow going to protect um, or service the folks who are doing the original reporting, which is what we really care about. I, that that was a little garbled in my mind as I say it, but that, that's a basic idea, right? That you can, you can, if you, if you, managerially structure your organization so you have people doing all these different tasks um you can theoretically at least you know kind of protect the core right right you can you can the iron core right exactly right you can protect the iron the iron core although since it's iron you know you wonder why it would need protecting but anyway um we don't want to push this metaphor too far right you can you can protect the core now that's a manager solution you know my the answer I might be more comfortable with, um, you know, is one to say that you know original reporting is really important, and and the original reporting and the news work, I guess, or the news production that newspapers do is is the most important thing that they do. But our definition of what original reporting is is bizarrely truncated. Right, and we need to see the production of content and and news as more than simply. And this is very unfair, and this is a this is not what all reporters do all the time. But I will say we need to see original reporting as being more than simply um, reading press releases, going to press conferences, uh, and you know getting tips um, from people that you know we expect to get tips from. Um, and calling people on our Rolodex when we need an expert opinion and we need to get it into a story, you know, before deadline at 5 p.m. Um, and not all reporters do that, and not all reporters do that all the time. But a lot of reporters spend a lot of their time doing what I just said, and there's no reason why that should be called original reporting, uh, you know, and reading 20 blogs a day and learning what different people in the city are saying about different topics, you know, there's no reason why what I just described should be seen as more important than, than the other thing, which is spending a lot of time online and reading what people are saying and following links and linking out and, and, and doing all that other stuff. Um, so yeah, I think that original reporting is important. Um, I think that original reporting, um, you know, is often a particular set of processes that are oversold. Uh, and maybe mythologized a little bit, and you know, I just would like I would like that definition to you know to loosen up a little bit. Um, you know, I think we will we will have a healthier media production system if we can just you know just just broaden your mind a little. Right. I mean, I think it is some of the most compelling uh, journalistic work that I've ever seen online is when you have someone who has a grounding in. Let's say the good piece of original reporting to, mm-hmm. to, to siphon off that slice, mm-hmm. um, but who also sort of 
is willing to engage directly with the public and to really break out story forms into uh, a bloggy or a social media centric mentality totally and, and to, to engage in some way. And I wonder if you talk about journalist conception of themselves. I, I kind of wonder if, if, Part of it is also a managerial question of the way to do that and to be successful involves a much more direct connection between the individual journalists mm-hmm. and the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that level of engagement, I argue at least, I haven't done ethnographies to prove this, but you know, that's something that, that management is often not really comfortable with. And yeah. part of the process of taking lots of individual voices and molding them into one communal newspaper-wide voice mm-hmm. uh, is something that you almost have to give up if you want to make sure that the audience on a particular beat is going to have a connection with the individual reporter there. And that's why I kind of wonder, it's interesting whether that would be different at the Daily News than at the Inquirer, which is a different conception of that. No, exactly. And and in fact, that was what I was just about to say in response to your question. You know, So the folks at the Daily News, and, and, and for, for people in the audience who don't know, that in the Philadelphia, the Daily News, Philadelphia Daily News is much like the New York Daily News. It is the tabloid. Um, the Philadelphia Inquirer is, you know, the broadsheet. Um, and they are both, as it turns out, owned by the same company, which is a whole other kettle of fish. Um, but that those are the two papers. Um, and yes, people – in fact, people at the Philadelphia Daily News talked about that all the time. And what they would always say is – you know, now you have to understand there is a huge rivalry between these two papers still today. Um, and they love to talk smack about each other. Um, again, even though they're owned by the same folks. But what the Daily News folks – would say is, you know, hey, you know what? We're actually, as an institution, more suited for the web than those guys upstairs. Sure. Meaning the Inquirer. You know, we have personality. We have voice. We have, you know, attitude. You know, we have, you know, we're columnist-driven, you know, as opposed to, you know, reporting-driven. Um, you know, we fit the web. Um, the <laughs> the irony here uh, is that Due to the way resources were managed, um, all of the online investment, uh, you know, in the Philly newspaper group um, was either done um, through Philly.com, which was a third site, which was kind of a aggregator of both the Inquirer and the Daily News. Um, so a lot of the money went to Philly.com, and a lot of the money went to the Inquirer um, to um, to start a breaking news, an online breaking news desk. Now that that's also important, but you know, the daily news was, was under resourced when it came to its ability to get and do cool things online. Um, and it was sort of really one of the paradoxes, um, you know, because they might have been, you know, more suited to the, to the web world, um, you know, than, than the inquirer was in particular ways. Um, but you know, they never had the tech chops, uh, to really make a make a mark there, and by the time that you know there might have been some rethinking of that, you know, the internet was already several stages past the blogosphere. If that makes sense, you know yeah. what I mean. Like it was, right. it had already moved on, you know, several several steps already. I want to get back to uh, what we were talking about earlier on the idea of uh, the mass public versus the niche and the ways mm-hmm. in which 
you know, uh, a newspaper reporter might identify with that, which is which is interesting in its own way, because, of course, uh, any metro newspaper in particular is really an assemblage of a variety of niches. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the mm-hmm. sports people aren't reading the investigations, the investigations people may not be reading the comics, the comics may not be, you know, clipping the coupons, you know, right. this, this divided universe that just happens to live under this common umbrella. And the structure of the newsroom matches that where you have mm-hmm. someone who covers education, but, you know, doesn't cover the Eagles. Um, right. I, I'm curious <clears throat> – um, if you could just talk a little bit more about that that conception of of mass audience and uh, how did you get the impression because I think a lot of journalists do get their their feeling of of importance and their their internal fortitude from being part of this big organization mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, did did in the follow up visits and, and conversations you've had since and have you seen any evolution on how people view the mass audience and now that they have a stronger perception that the mass is maybe not what it was 10 years ago yeah i mean you know so two sort of two sort of things on that um there was a there was a phrase that you know when when people were redesigning the philadelphia the philly.com web web page um you know and they wanted to know kind of what their tagline was or what their their slogan was you know the slogan that they chose was you know anything and everything philadelphia you know that was the 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 few words that they wanted to 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 use to you know sort of sum up what they did um you know and that again is this idea of the mass public right like even if we're in sports, you know, even if we're in architecture, even if we're in, you know, in, in, you know, education reporting, you know, all of which themselves are niches, you know, we as a institution are the only ones who speak to the city, right? We're the only ones who actually talk to the city and the city talks back to us. And it was really encapsulated in this slogan, you know, anything and everything, um, Philadelphia, um, you know, and one of the things the internet did was it increasingly, showed these journalists that they were not everything Philadelphia. There was no way they could be everything Philadelphia. There was so much going on in Philadelphia that was represented online that they themselves didn't didn't talk about or didn't capture or didn't write about. You know, they they couldn't they couldn't they couldn't claim to be anything and everything Philadelphia um in an online world anymore. Um now since since in the last few years, you know, the, the question you asked was, you know, have they started to re-see or, 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 or see the audience they speak to or the public they speak to differently? Um, the short answer to that question is, is yes, and the people they speak to or the people they want to speak to are the people who will pay, right? So hmm. that actually has been a very, you know – interesting change in the newsroom mindset and and it has a lot to do with the the institution of paywalls and the institution of you know pay fences um or whatever you know a meter model whatever you want to call it um journalists have been have been far more comfortable um with the idea that the niche they speak to is the niche who will the niche who will pay um and to me that is a huge mindset uh shift um, in the way journalists think about what they do, um, which is why when paywalls always come up, you know, I always try to avoid the question of, you know, will or will will they be economically successful or not? I mean, to me, they they might, but that's not really the interesting question. The interesting question is how will the institutions of paywalls change the way journalists think about themselves and think about who reads them? Um, 
you know, so they, they, I think they have gotten more comfortable with the idea of a niche audience in a large way. That niche audience is sort of dominated by economic concerns. Um, you know, I also think they are, they are more comfortable in a more general way with the idea that, you know, the people who are going to read, you know, reporting from city hall, you know, the city hall bureau are like the real news junkies, you know what I mean? Or the, the city power players. I mean, I think they always knew that. I think they're more comfortable with admitting that now. Mm -hmm. So there is, there is less monetary stuff going on as well, but you know, the paywall, the paywall argument or the, the meter argument or the, you know, how to get people to pay for this stuff argument that has really taken the conversation about niches and, and the niche audience in some interesting directions that, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily anticipated when I started doing the research. Yeah, because it's it's not that far of a leap from this is the people we think of the audience we're speaking – these are the people we're speaking to to these are the people we're speaking about and to have exactly. the representation of the subject matter change to fit those sorts of interests the way that if you read the Wall Street Journal because of who the Wall Street Journal is speaking to, you're actually – you know, you're not going to be reading about community colleges. You're going to be reading about Harvard and Yale and yep. Princeton and, and Morton yep. and the rest. Indeed. I think that's exactly right. It's also it's also interesting to think about the concept of mass in the context of Philadelphia because they specifically invested in Philly.com, the idea there would be a unified front right. that is that does do the high low uh it takes the high low split that the that the inquirer and the Daily News had and unifies it into one whole and specifically says this is for everybody. Right. Well, you know, and that was I mean the story of Philly.com, and I and I tell this in the book, is is sort of the the story of this kind of pendulum swinging back and forth between you know Philly.com as a as a honest to god aggregator of the content of of the tabloids, the broadsheet, and kind of their own in house staff of you know video producers. Um, so the people doing original. Production at Philly.com when I was there, and this has changed, but when I was there, their original reporting was all done in the form of, of video. Um, they did have a staff of, of video producers. Um, that's one idea of Philly.com. Um, another idea of Philadelphia, Philly.com, and, and the pendulum, like I said, has gone back and forth on this, is Philly.com as the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, you know, and that everything else is is sort of relegated to second tier status. Um, that it's not truly a aggregator of of everyone in the newspaper group. It is a you know, it is basically the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, you know, with with a slightly different brand and a different URL, but that's what you know, that's what Philly dot com is. And you know, this idea of what Philly dot com should be has kind of swung back and forth depending on, you know, who's in the management at a particular time and, you know, how people think the web works and what people think the balance is between, you know, highbrow and lowbrow stuff. And, you know, and again, honestly, like I said, just to repeat, you know, so much of it is just, you know, who's on the top, who's the top dog in the news organization at that particular time, you know, are they an inquirer person or a daily news person or, a, you know, a, a page views person, um, so that that concept has has not been static over time. It has really changed depending on both the structure of the organization and the larger sense of you know this is what's going on on the web. Um, we and may a, see them. Uh, I was just say just to finish, we may see them moving back towards more of an inquirer space at this point. Um, yeah, I was say since they you know early 2013 they said they're going to split the inquirer and the daily news into separate sites and still have Philly.com as a free site, whereas yep. the other two would be paywalled. Yeah, and I think they're going to be saying, you know, and I think they're really going to be pushing for folks to go to the Inquirer. I mean, that that is what I see. Yeah, when yeah. they talk about where to go. Yeah, you hear you, you you've heard over the last several years regular threats of they're going to close the Daily News. You don't hear they're going to close the Inquirer in the in the same way. No, 
Um, one of the other things that you talk about in the in the book is, and that goes throughout it, is the the concept of networks and the <laughs> ways in which, and, and at one level, networks can be viewed as a network journalism can be viewed as an opposition to institutionalized mm-hmm. journalism. But of course, mm-hmm. the institutions are a part of that of that network. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm curious. You know what what you saw in terms of the evolution of that approach. You know, uh, over the time that you're you're looking at, I will I will say the first time I ever heard a newspaper editor, I think a well intentioned you know high quality newspaper editor, complain about uh, collaboration fatigue <laughs> was a Philadelphia newspaper editor I won't name, um, <laughs> and just the idea that uh, particularly with the boomlet that was just starting when you were you know, during your, your immersion there, this boomlet of nonprofit sites mm-hmm, and, and independent mm-hmm. institutions who were sort of of newspaper culture to an extent and mm-hmm, wanted to work mm-hmm. with them as a way to get their, their work out. Uh, I, I know a lot of, you know, a lot of people in Philadelphia and elsewhere found that to be a, a tiring process and, yep. and in some ways almost an advertisement for the idea of a big institution where everyone works under one management. You can sort of direct people. <laughs> Yeah, no. I mean, I again, you know, there was an, a, something of an evolution of my thinking on this. I came into the research and, and really ended the original phase of research in, in you know, two thousand nine. Um, you know, very convinced that the future of networked, uh, the future of journalism was kind of a more networked approach, a, a collaborative, you know, sort of cross institutional people. You know, do what you do best and link to the rest. I guess as you know. Professor Jeff Jarvis would put it. Um, you know, I really, you know, I really bought into that when I when I was finishing up my the main bulk of my, my first round of research. Um, you know, I have since modified my perspective on that to say that collaboration is way harder than anyone thought it was. Um, collaboration takes way more time and energy, um, than anyone, um, thought it would. Um, but I would, so I think that, that counter argument is fair. Um, and, but I would say that my response to that counter argument, um, would be that you know you need to hire a you know a deputy deputy editor for collaboration you know i mean you you can't have this as being kind of a a ad hoc you know process where we you know we we kind of have this collaboration here and this collaboration there and you know if we get can get some money out of it or if we can get you know a quote unquote exchange of value out of it you know we're going to do it um you know no this should be a you know masthead level position of somebody who you know, it's one or two steps down the editorial food chain and who just manages collaboration, you know, hire that person. Um, and, and so I th- here's what I would say. I think you need a, a institutional approach to networks, <laughs> hmm. right? You, you know, networks don't just form on their own and collaborations just don't happen on their own. You need to have one or two people at a place with the money and time to rationally manage how these connections are going to get made. And think- yeah. I think it's also part of it is also I, I would argue a uh, an indictment of the sort of anti aggregation or devaluation approach that a lot of newsrooms have because you know, part one reason why collaboration is is difficult is that you have two forces who are who are essentially working together to produce a product that will fit the voice of the big institution yep. you know lots of you know uh, nonprofit centers that end up working with a newspaper or a radio station or whatever else you end up taking work and shoveling shoving it into a package that will work for them whereas 
you know, collaboration could also be construed as, hey, this nonprofit did a really awesome story. We're going to link to it really prominently because we want we think our readers would be interested in it. Indeed. Um, and in fact, I have a whole chapter on this uh, in the book um, where I basically kind of grapple with the, the idea that, uh, you know, managerially speaking, it was far easier for these news organizations to to enter formal content sharing partnerships that involved, you know, tons of meetings and and contracts and you know, white papers and and plans and you know it was easier for them to do that than it was to simply link to another person's story in another organization, hmm. right? You link. Linking takes like two seconds. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, even say whatever you want about, you know, the problem with content management systems, you know, and linking, you know, linking is easier to do than creating a formalized partnership between two organizations that's going to be, you know, to be managed in all these ways, um, you know, but, but they couldn't link. And so I, I this sort of blew my mind. I, you know, I said to myself, like, how is this possible? Um, and and you just described it um, in your own your own question, you know. Um, so I think that deputy manager for for collaboration would would not simply be the person in those meetings, the person setting up those partnerships, but they would be a you know they would educate people on that process. You know that look, you don't have to rewrite this story in order to put it in your own voice. You can simply link to it. And you know there's some social science research guys that says. You know, when you send people away from a newspaper website, that actually often brings more people back in. Um, you know, news news organizations still don't quite get that. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a hugely important point, and it was you know one of the puzzles I was I was really kind of wrestling with. One of the other points that you, that you raised that goes through the book that we can also tie into the report that you and Clay and Emily did recently is is the idea of a post industrial journalism and how the industrial workings of of a news of the newspaper you know persisted even though mm-hmm. they might have been constructed for a previous business context and a previous journalistic context and a, and a distribution context. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I want to ask you a little bit more because this was a question I had out of the post industrial journalism report mm-hmm. too is. The, why industrial is is the metaphor that 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 you settled on that that report settled right. on because I think you could look at the kind of news work that's being created at a new tier of digitally native you know having no legacy origins mm-hmm. news organizations and there's there's a similar sort of set of workflows and there's yep. a set of of organizational yep. structures and they might be different but nonetheless they are sort of industrial in the same sort of way even though if they're not producing a physical product the way that a newspaper would yeah totally agree. Um... You know, I was actually giving a talk up at Columbia yesterday, and one of the points I tried to make was to say, you know, we will not – there will never be no process, you know, in the way that news is produced. We will always have rational production processes. Um, It's just that what those processes are are changing. Um, And, you know, what we're going to see is a new rational production process emerge – and and an old one go away and where we are right now is that kind of moment of chaos where you know one is still operating and it doesn't make much sense and another is emerging and no one really knows what it is so yeah i totally i totally agree with you um you know look if left to my druthers uh you know i would probably have called the report you know post you know 
post-routinized, mechanized news production (laughs) or something horrible like that, right? (laughs) I mean, you know, but but thank God Emily and Clay would never, you know, let me let me do such a horrible thing. But Um, but but if you look at something like like you know, you look at Gawker Media, like that, they are routinized. They yeah. are mechanized. They have a, a, a production process that's at a different pace and it has different conceptions of what appropriate inputs and yeah. outputs are. But I, I guess I guess that, that's, that's part of my, 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 my issue with it is that it post-industrial implies yeah. that, that, that there won't be a system that will – there will just be this sort of grand collection of, of proteins in a primordial soup and things will come out of it. And you know, we're, essentially we're building new structures, not abandoning the idea of structure. Yeah, no. I, again, I think I agree. Um, you know, I think the one of the problems with the word industrial, it has, it is sort of, it has this context of you know the old way being left behind, um, and and there being no process uh, at all. I mean, I think that you know, in the context of that report, um, you know, what we were re- that title was really speaking to um, the traditional news organizations. Uh, you know, to basically say, you know. And you can't get a new process until you have no pro- – <laughs> until to some degree you're you're comfortable with having a bit of a chaotic process at first, right? Because these guys are going to perceive that transition um, from from you know their own way of doing it to the Gawker way of doing it, um, you know, as that's the chaos. world's worst thing, <laughs> right? As chaos, right? As post-industrial, as you know, there's nothing going on. And I guess that you know the the polemical purpose in that title. Um, was to was to get the more traditional digitally non-native organizations to to be comfortable with that um to be comfortable with that idea but but that said intellectually i i utterly and completely agree with you um you know i'm describing my sort of ism in scholarship i would probably call myself a weberian um, which is the ideas of Max Weber, who is a sociologist, who basically argues that you know the main trend in modern society is towards increasing routinization and industrialization. Um, and I do think that's true. And I think that perhaps the most interesting thing that's going online is to watch you know the Weberian gears grind and you know watch these very ad hoc kind of sites and processes become industrialized. Um, so intellectually, I agree with you. Um, you know, polemically, there was sort of a, a reasoning as to why we call it post-industrial. Sure, I, it's it's, it's a useful metaphor, and it, right. it, it gets it gets the point across. I'm just yeah. scribbling. No, I, <laughs> but I think you're right. I think I think you're totally I think you're totally right on. Um, you know, and, and I think the reason what the way we try to get at this in the report was to say, you know, it was to encourage the increasing routinization of 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 digital you know, of digital first players, you know, right. and not just, not just routinization, but, you know, for them to share what their operations were as much as they could without giving trade secrets away. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think it would benefit uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer to know what Gawker's routines were. Sure. You know, I mean, I, I think they would, they would really, that would really help them. Um, you know, so, so yeah, I think that, I think that, you know, to the degree they can educate, you know, sort of the, the, you know, the pre-industrial print folks as to what they actually do to get this stuff out, um, would be a hugely helpful process. Last question. I want to yeah. ask you about um, what is interesting. So Neiman Lab started in 2008. Uh, so I, I think that I've been I've been following closely in this role the, uh, the same arc of time uh, that that this that this book that research covers roughly. And 
if I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put forward a series of suppositions so you can tell yeah. me whether they're right or not. I'm, I'm guessing that when you started this out from what you've described and, and my other guesses and I think what the tenor was in 2008, uh, despite the fact that the journalism world as we knew it was sort of falling down all around us, uh, I think there was an optimism that uh, these new structures would come up and that the jobs that were performed by – you know, the big metro newspapers or, you know, insert whatever news entity you want there, were going to be performed by new entities and that those jobs were going to transition and there was going to be a terrible time in the middle where things were getting done in uh, to to lesser degrees or, you know, Mm -hmm. there were problems, but that the institutions would arrive. And I personally look at the metro scale news landscape in cities across the United States and I see a whole lot of places where those institutions have not arrived and show no real sign of arriving and that uh we're seeing the decline of one thing and less less i have less optimism and i you know despite all the good things that have happened the last years less optimism that those jobs are going to be filled um did you have that optimism five years ago and how has that changed since then um yeah you know i did i did have that optimism um Five years ago, um, although I will say I ended the research, you know, in 2009, incredibly depressed um, because I, you know, the newspapers had just kind of declared bankruptcy, and I, and I, you know, knew a bunch of really cool journalists who were, you know, facing, you know, sort of bleak employment prospect. That's sort of the flip side of being an ethnographer, is you actually get to really like the people you're hanging out with. Um, so I was sort of spiritually bleak. I was intellectually optimistic, as you said, that, you know, that that these new structures would emerge um, to fill these these roles. You know, I agree with you. I think that 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 it's not as if, you know, these roles, these political and public roles that news organizations filled are going to come back in the same way that they did. Um, that however, ties into where we started this conversation, which is to say that I think what is really going on, and we can only see the very vague outlines of this at this point, um, is that politics and the idea of public accountability are changing in massive ways. Um, I think, you know, and, and how, to, how to bring that a little closer to the ground. You know, maybe, um, maybe the urban metropolitan center is no longer the terrain on which, you know, public affairs should be reported, right? You know, maybe the the communities of interest in different cities that kind of get united, you know, you know, horizontally, you know, so you're interested in particular issues in Denver and Des Moines and and Austin, you know, maybe those are the the those kind of interest group grounds or the grounds on which politics, you know, and and public affairs will be reported on in the future as opposed to What's happening in this city? Does that make sense? I mean, well, I, I get that argument. I guess my yeah. my main concern about that, though, is that um, that would be great if our democratic institutions were flexible enough to yep. make similar shifts. I mean, at the end, we're still going to have state legislators, we're still going to have city councils, we're going to have city halls and county sheriffs, and those institutions are still going to be tied to geography. And we had this wonderful accident where, yes. for you know, a century or so, the journalistic institutions were aligned geographically with the government governance institutions, and the web doesn't seem to support that same focus on geography. Yeah, and and again, uh, you know, completely agree. And I think that, which is why, you know, if I had to say, you know, what should I, you know, I'm a, I'm a politically passionate, you know, I'm, you know, you're like, uh, somebody's like I was, you know, 15 years ago, I'm a politically passionate 20-year-old, what do I want to, you know, I want to go out there and change the world, what do I want to, what do I want to do? Um, 
I would say, you know, get in there and change the way government works. <laughs> you know, like the, the, the terrain of struggle is going to be on bringing those political structures, um, dragging them forward into a way that makes sense um, in the culture and in the information system that we have now. You know, and and it seems impossible. Um, it, it seems hard to believe that they will ever get there. But, you know, I mean, the progressive movement did it to some degree. You know, they, they radically changed the way government functioned, uh, you know, the way government related to its citizens. And they did it largely for the kind of reasons we're talking about here, you know, that, that information was changing and industry was changing and the scale uh, upon which politics happened was changing, you know, and that's all happening again. And, and we need, you know, so don't, I guess I always say this, you know, in conversations with journalists and, and I always get, you know, people are like, well, you're a journalism scholar. Why do you say this? But, you know, for me, what happens in journalism is less important than what happens in the institutions and the entities that journalism is supposed to be reporting on. That is where the real future um, and whether this is a happy story or a sad story, that is where we're going to find the answer to that question. You know, can we get politics to match where we are right now? And that's what we should be. You know, if we have money to donate or volunteer time to give, that is where we should be focusing our our energy, um, not necessarily on, you know, the future of news, <laughs> basically. Well, I, I thoroughly disagree with that last point because the future of news is the most important area for money to be thrown. But that uh, is – yes, no. But, that's you know, a selfish point of view. Yes, no. It's, it, it, uh, you know, it's sort of your day job versus your free time, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been great. Uh, thanks for, for chatting with us. Appreciate it. No, thanks, Josh. It was great. Thank you. Well, that's episode five of Press Publish. Hope you enjoyed it. You can find links to Chris's book and everything else we talked about in today's episode in the show notes at neimanlab.org. For the record, it's never a bad time to brush up on your Max Faber. If you have any suggestions for guests we should have on future episodes, please do get in touch. You can reach me at joshua underscore benton at harvard.edu. Many, many thanks to our listeners. You guys have downloaded these episodes over 18,000 times, and that's just through the first four episodes. I really do appreciate it. New this week, you can listen to all of our episodes of Press Publish on SoundCloud, if that's the place you like to do your listening. You can find all our episodes as a set at the main Harvard site there, which is at soundcloud.com slash Harvard. And by the way, you can also subscribe to the podcast within iTunes U, also in the Harvard section. The Neiman Journalism Lab is a project of the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University, home of the Neiman Fellowships, Neiman Reports Magazine, Neiman Storyboard, and much, much more. Find us at neiman.harvard.edu, and that is N-I-E-M-A-N, not like Neiman Marcus. This episode was recorded at Walter Lippmann House. Walter Lippmann, who said, Within the life of the generation now in control of affairs, persuasion has become a self-conscious art and a regular organ of popular government. None of this begins to understand the consequences, but it is no daring prophecy to say that the knowledge of how to create consent will alter every political calculation and modify every political premise. That's from Public Opinion, 1922. Our theme music again is Missing You by Trash 80. Check back next week for another episode of Press Publish. But until then, always remember, disrupt yourself before someone else disrupts you. Disrupt yourself.